Hi, listeners. Welcome to It's the People, an interview series where we explore the inside story of building companies and investment portfolios with high-octane founders, limited partners, and fund managers. We hope these conversations push you to be even better at what you do. I'm Andy Greenfield, a general partner at TIA Ventures. This week, my partner, Wills Hapworth, and I had the opportunity to interview a seasoned investor, Bob Gold, who is the former CEO and president of Ridgewood Capital, a decades-old private equity and venture capital fund focused on technology and energy. Bob's investment experience runs from early-stage venture to late-stage private equity. He's raised billion-dollar funds and mentored scores of early-stage founders. Bob is passionate, relentless, irreverent, direct, and a hell of a lot of fun. In today's interview, we discuss a range of topics, including how difficult life events, truly difficult events, can make all work-related challenges far easier to handle, the simple steps to increasing your odds of winning, what pitching and communicating with your audience is really all about, and much more. To start things off, Bob begins the conversation with his life story in 60 seconds. But before we begin, I want to note that this interview is for informational purposes only and that the opinions expressed here should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. TIA Ventures is a seed stage fund focused primarily on early stage B2B technology companies with a relentless focus on deep customer diligence and early teams. We invite you to enjoy the podcast. To get things rolling... Could you give us the Bob Gold life story and if, if possible, 60 seconds or less? Sure. Well, you're probably more interested in my professional career, but my the longer background is I graduated from college, Colgate University in 1980. I worked on the Hill for a year, uh, went to NYU Law School. I clerked for a federal judge who uh, was the chief judge of the district. Uh, in Brooklyn. And then I went to one of these mega law firms, uh, Cleary Gottlieb, for several years. And then very randomly, I met a guy who had started a small private equity fund. And I met him in 1987. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't entirely clear what the future would hold. We got along great. And I ended up spending from 1987 to 2021 there. We put 12 billion, almost 12 billion under management, we invested in a huge array, array of industries, conventional and renewable energy, infrastructure, tech, media, telecom. Had a great career, had thousands of investors, some of the world's largest institutions, endowments and foundations. Uh, so invested in a lot of P and a lot of venture. At one point had an office in Silicon Valley and as well as in London, Houston, San Francisco, and New York. So it's been a fabulous career. I've had a lot of fun, and uh, now I'm doing more entrepreneurial things. Well, Bob, th thank you. Uh, <clears throat> and I'd like to point out that fabulous career is not yet over, and we'll talk about what's going on today a little later. But can, can we go back, way back? Uh, you grew up in New Rochelle, New York, uh, as I recall a pretty middle-class neighborhood. And ironically, you had, if I recall correctly, uh, three neighbors and friends, all who also grew up in a nice middle-class environment there. 
And all four of you ended up being immensely successful. Any sense of what contributed to that? Or was it just something in the water or just serendipity? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question, Andy. Um, and, you know, it's really four people I grew up with that, you know, become just insanely successful. One became the president of CNN. One uh, became the CFO of Citigroup's Corporate Investment Bank. That's Hans Morris, who uh, also is a, was a partner at General Atlantic, took Visa Public. Uh, Ken Mollis is another close friend who grew up with me in New Rochelle. We played Little League together beginning in first grade. Everyone on Wall Street knows Ken Mollis. Not only was he president of UBS, but he started his own firm. And then my uh, one of my closest friends down the block, Stephen Zaitel, probably became America's most famous surgeon. Not only is he an endowed chair at Harvard Medical School, but I always laugh with him when Adele won her Grammy, she thanked him for fixing her throat. So... Not many surgeons get called out at a Grammy accepted speech. Now, if I look at all of us and, you know, our parents wanted us, expected us, set expectations on us to be successful. And we grew up middle class, no expectations. Many of our parents hadn't been to college or, you know, they were first generation. They All of our fathers probably fought in the war. And there was a certain requirement that you don't take shortcuts, that you do well, um, and that you perform. And it drove us to work really hard. I think we were comfortable with risk. We created opportunities. I don't think it was anything magical. We also came of age at the right time. Um, you know, America had this amazing boom from when we graduated college in the early 80s to 2010. And, but we worked our tails off and got in the right position and took advantage of a lot of good opportunities. <clears throat> but Bob, is there anything, I mean, there's no shortage of parents who want their kids to work hard, right. not take shortcuts, be successful. And maybe there wasn't, but I'm just curious. It, it seems like it, it can't be randomness, can't be a fluke that all of you became what you became, because I'm sure that there were people in middle-class neighborhoods all over the country that wanted the same for their kids. Anything else that you think contributed? It was probably a mutually reinforcing cycle, you know, that yet we had it, we had a, I don't know who planted the seed. You know, we all stayed pretty closely networked. Um, we saw what the others were doing. We were able to figure out what accounted for success. I mean, I, I don't know, Wills. I mean, it, it, I've, we've all talked about it. What happened? Why did it work? I think it was just about being driven. You know, maybe it was something in the water. You know, we were ambitious, aggressive, intelligent, risk-taking fighters and and none of us grew up with money so it's not like maybe that drove us to be financially successful but the success of this cohort is so outside the boundaries of what you would anticipate from you know five five kids on a playground in an elementary school but one way or the other it worked so it's quite remarkable and Bob, you use the word driven and ambitious. And often when I think of that, I think of 
people who are type A, you know, playing the net, leaning over the net. And we've known you for a long time. I don't think we've ever seen you upset or angry. You always seem calm and patient on the outside, never phased, never ruffled. You don't sweat the small stuff. Is that just what the world sees on the outside and inside there's a churning cauldron of angst and emotion or is what we see what we get? And if so, where does that come from? Yeah, well, I do have emotions, even though <laughs> yeah. people don't see them. You know, as, as you guys know, I've had some personal tragedies in my life. Uh, my brother died of cancer when he was 37 and my wife died of cancer when she was 48. I only have one brother and one wife. And when you go through something like that, you have context and perspective of what really matters. And, you know, I've had to make a lot of hard decisions in, in my life personally. Uh, you know, single parent of five kids. I had two young nephews when my brother died. They were about four. And, um, yeah, I was quite emotional about that. But it, it gave me the perspective that nothing at work, you know, nothing seems unable to be handled or managed and uh you know with a certain amount of perspective you can realize like okay you know we can handle that the other thing is i've sort of come to the view that every setback is an opportunity and every setback creates interesting challenges and i've seen that professionally i mean we did a lot of oil and gas and energy and you know prices were very volatile but you know, when they dropped, it created new investment opportunities, the ability to hire better people, to upgrade your team. Um, and once you start having the perspective that every setback and every bad thing ultimately can lead to something better, then you don't have to, you know, spend time getting super nervous and very emotional and very distressed about it, but rather you can start immediately turning into thinking about how it creates additional opportunity. And that's kind of the way I approach things. So, yeah, I, I think I'm an emotion. I'm emotional on the inside, but I'm also rational and tend not to show my, uh, my interior to the exterior. Bob on that, is there anything, and I don't think we've encountered it yet or seen it that does make you uncomfortable, nervous, well, I think when I land on someone who's unethical and I'm involved with them, I get pretty upset and nervous and disengaged um, or someone who's a corner cutter or someone who I don't want to be in business with, but I have to be in business with. I mean, I've, I've dealt with people who I have not trusted, who I haven't liked, I felt would always decide in, you know, in very narrow, self-interested ways. And that makes me nervous and uncomfortable and at times difficult and emotional. And, you know, I'm on not-for-profit boards and I'm on public, you know, public company boards, but, you know, boards of my funds. And when you encounter people who you just feel bad about, yeah, I can be a difficult, emotional person. You know, one of the things that we find interesting about you is you're a guy who's exceptionally successful, but you seem equally comfortable with, you know, going from busboys to billionaires. 
you know, from people of other cultures who socioeconomically are on a very different level than you. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and how it, you know, well, how it's- I, yeah, I want to try to do it without sounding, you know, patronizing or superior, but, you know, it's really interesting, Andy. I married into a family, a big sprawling Irish Catholic family. And my wife was the eighth of nine kids. And I have a couple dozen, you know, nieces and nephews, as well as, you know, my own kids. And both in my in-laws and in my nieces and nephews, you have this incredible dispersion of people, you know, teachers, retailers, firemen, policemen, nurses, um, and, you know, sort of, I wouldn't call them blue collar jobs, but, you know, I'd call them, you know, middle class jobs and people who work with their hands, who are essential workers, you know, who don't wear suits and ties and are quite brave and uh, do things that are quite difficult. And then I have, you know, senior partners in top New York law firms is the same and top Wall Street people and, you know, the other side of, you know, of our economic side. And what I have found is for the most part, or many times, my most meaningful relationships, my most interesting conversations, the most enjoyable time is spent with the people who I wouldn't otherwise encounter in my professional life. And it's not because I'm so real, but because they have really interesting lives. They bring great perspective and ideas and thoughts to, to things. I mean, they're in the, they struggle more. You know, their lives are not, I wouldn't say easy, less easy, but, you know, certainly economically, there's more challenge. And by the way, they tend to be two or three times as happy. You know, they've spent more times in their community, more times with their friends, and I just really look forward to my time with them. I mean, I'm spend, having dinner tonight with, uh, you know, two people, one of whom, you know, is a farmer full time and one of whom is a carpenter. And I can't wait. And their view on what's happening in the world, you know, in Afghanistan and the immigration crisis and our president is always fascinating and interesting and when you get too far away from that, you know, you've sort of become a far less interesting person. So, yeah, I really look forward to all the time I spend with everybody. Bob, Bob on that, I, I have a theory, and I'm curious if you think this is true, that part of your superpower is everything that you just talked about matched with, you know, a, a legal degree from an esteemed institution, um, and your ability to be to be able to have conversations with anybody about everything, but also be incredibly precise and kind of understand kind of the business of things and what's going on. Do you think that is your secret sauce that's enabled you to be super successful? Or if not, what what is the the Bob secret sauce? You, you know, Will's. I I'm not sure there is a secret sauce. It's, it's like so much of success does come back to the, some of the cliches your father tells you, or, you know, you learn from mentors about reading everything that's put in front of you, doing the work, out preparing, showing up on time, you know, not winging it, um, having, you know, intense focus, 
building a strategy, communicating it to everyone, you know, figuring out what you're good at, what you're not good at, what other people are good at. I mean, I play to win. I do. But, you know, and I'm super competitive, but I also don't let anyone outwork me or get more focused than me or outthink me. You know, anytime I go into a negotiation or a hiring, I collaborate with the smartest people I know. Uh, I'm always looking for other people's ideas. It, I mean, it all sounds so cliche, but it all works. Like the idea that you're an island and you can do this by yourself and not get the benefit of other people's experience and training and expertise and the like, I take advantage of all of that. You know, a, a huge network that I'm always tapping. And, um, you know, I stay in touch with people. I think I also figure out what's important to other people. And I try to be a critical part of that. So, you know, it's interesting. Some of my closest business acquaintances are not people I've done deals with, but people whose causes I've supported either financially or with time or, you know, with ideas, you know, and it comes down to, you know, first I was interested in it, but really figuring out what matters to other people and being a part of that in a significant way. And that's kind of the Bob Gold secret sauce, you know, working with great people, never being outworked and having people who will go to bat for me whenever I need them to. Did you learn any of those lessons early on or is it just, is it taken a, a career to realize that all the, you know, the things that you hear from your parents that sound like cliches in tandem actually all work together or were there moments along the way, maybe even back in new Rochelle where you're like, Oh, if I, I I'm not a one person, one man band. Or, you know, if, if, I, you know, if I choose not to be, I can be six, more successful. It's, it's interesting. I have, you know, I've raised a lot of money through private equity. And part of raising that money is you typically work with an agent. And I've had agent bake-offs a number of times. And this is the moment when I really realized it. And at one point, when I was looking for both bracket firm, I had you know, B of A Merrill and City and UBS and Morgan Stanley competing. And then second time I was thinking for more of a boutique firm and I had, you know, the four largest boutiques. And I, and these are people all of whom are tough to get meetings with, let alone getting them compete to take on your deals. And, and our deals were never me too deals. Our deals were exotic and difficult and took a lot of time. So it's not like anyone was saying immediately, let's just go do this. This is going to be easy. They actually had to make an investment in me. And I had to convince them that by taking us on, you know, we would work. And I looked at who were the ones who were willing to support the effort of me and my firm. And it's quite amazing. Most of my best contacts were people who I knew, not because I had done a deal with them five years ago, but because we had overlapping interests, whether I was on the board of a charity they were on the board of, whether we went, we were both supporting one, you know, a couple had gone to Colgate and were involved with, um, you know, some program at Colgate that I was involved in or had gone to NYU Law School. I'm on the board of NYU Law School. We're involved there. Um, 
one, I, I did a not-for-profit around, you know, math education, and, you know, there was a relationship there that led to it, and on and on and on. Um, Mass MoCA has been a sort, I'm a, on the board of the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, has been a source of contact. I mean, I've had a lot of people at a lot of, you know, top banks and boutiques and companies that I've done business with who wanted to do a next deal with me and the like, but more, much more so, it's quite interesting. It's been people who I've had relationships with through things outside of the deal-making, work-making things, where we got to know each other well. They saw that I was a person with integrity who delivered on promises, and we partnered in trying to create something better and bigger. And that sets, sets a great stage for doing things professionally. And that's that's really how it worked. You know, Bob, you touched on Mass Mocha. You touched on uh, meeting people through charitable uh, pursuits. And, you know, one of the things when we think of you is we think of a guy who's uh, a philanthropist and, and quite generous. And you've been doing that for a while. And, and I guess one of the things we're curious about is, how that started, when that started, sometimes people have an epiphany or a, a, a brush with something terrible or just have an affinity for a particular uh, area, or they grow up in a, an environment of philanthropy. Where did yours come from? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. As I mentioned, you know, my brother and wife died of cancer, and so my initial involvement was uh, uh, sort of foundations and fundraising around cancer therapies. And what I always tried to avoid were, you know, the very large institutions that tend to spend a lot of money on fundraising and on administrative. And where can you find the innovators, you know, the, the PhD postdoc who's doing something super innovative or you know, the, the teacher who's looking for women and inner city kids who are, you know, could be future tech stars. And um, so I started doing it around cancer and I realized that there were a lot of other things that needed to be done. I, you know, when I was a tech investor and I saw how white male Silicon Valley was, it became really important to me that we, that, uh, to invest in, you know, philanthropically, uh, first-generation immigrants and women who were, you know, future tech stars. And so I, I backed this guy who had a program in Long Island for gifted math students, and they ended up having a significant chunk of the Intel scholars. It's now not called Intel, but you know, and and, and it, you know, Andy, it really comes from identifying problems and wanting to make a difference, and where you think you can essentially be, your money can be like yeast where, you know, you put it in, you make other things rise. And, and it's like anything. It's like, if you're, you, you guys are tech investors and you look for entrepreneurs who can take an idea and turn it into something really big. Well, I look for something similar. I mean, they're not entrepreneurs, but they're effectively social entrepreneurs and they're innovative and, and they've looked around and seen where there are things that need to be solved and what's special, how they can do it differently. And that's what's driven 
you know, my philanthropy. It's just an acute awareness that there are certain things in our society that not only need to be fixed, but can be fixed. I mean, they're big projects, obviously, but, you know, you try to make a difference and not try to back bureaucracies, but innovators. And that's sort of been the thrust of my philanthropy. And if there was going to be an element that you have identified over the years in philanthropists or in, sorry, in um, folks uh, doing social entrepreneurship that you say, wow, that's somebody I would bet on. What what might that be? Yeah, right now, you mean? Is there a person? No, no. As in general, as you look across, because your philanthropy has spanned a, a really broad range of activities. And I'm wondering if there's a common element as you look at those, the folks who are doing yeah. those activities that, uh, that you say, well, I'll bet I mean, on him. As, or as I mentioned, one of it is, you know, uh, innovators. Um, the other is people who take a very interdisciplinary approach. I mean, it's, it's not enough to be just good at one thing if you want to change the world or really have impact. So uh, let, let's say you're backing someone who feels they have a very innovative approach to you know, some form of cancer treatment as a postdoc at Stanford. You know, you also want that person who understands data science and epidemiology and um, patient delivery mechanisms and access to healthcare. I mean, it's one thing to have a protein that you think will make a difference, but if they're not figuring out the ecosystem of where it's going to fit and why it's going to be delivered and what lives it can change and on and on and on, you know, it's not going to work. Same, I've focused a lot on first generation and non, you know, and as well, first generation immigrants as well as, you know, inner city kit, inner city education. And again, you need to have leaders. Um, You know, it's not just getting that kid in the classroom and figuring out how to teach them better, but understanding how, by making them better students, uh, how advancing them, you know, will then lead to greater success for them, their family, and their community. And, you know, like the Zuckerberg Foundation gets that, and they can put, you know, a whole lot more resources in it. They have these schools in East Palo Alto. But on a smaller level, I try to do the same thing, which is who are the innovators in education who need support um, and can be, you know, transform not just an individual, but a community. And that's and with a very interdisciplinary approach. You know, on, on some level here, whether it's philanthropy or companies or funds, we're talking about how you make picks. And I, I always think, Bob, you have this gut that you're able to just listen to so closely uh, that takes into account decades of experience. And I often ask myself in certain situations, like, what would Bob do? And, you know, as you make picks, as you make decisions about people, you know, you've mentioned a few of these things, the types of people or maybe their backgrounds. Are, are there certain qualities that 
you're looking for in particular in individuals, whether it's in philanthropy or, you know, early stage technology or, you know, and all the other stuff that you do, like, what do you look for in people and what do you not look for? What do you screen out? Well, you know, I think about the first time I met Andy um, because, you know, Andy essentially, Andy and I met, we uh, immediately got along and he wanted me to, get more involved into the entrepreneur program, fund action program at Colgate. And I thought about Andy and, you know, what is it about Andy that, you know, is so appealing. And I mean, besides the fact that you can immediately tell he has, you know, strong ethical sense and a, a true North that, you know, points to integrity. You know, he's a guy who has found companies, started companies, built companies, ran companies, sold companies, made money for people, hired, trained, have loyal people, you know, a long history of just success and delivering. And you don't get to meet that many people like that in the course of your life. You know, they are a handful um, or two. And as soon as I met him, I said, wow, if I can work with Andy on something, because not only do I like him a great deal, but, you know, here's a guy who's done all those things I just said, you know, why wouldn't I? And as we know, TIA, you know, the Colgate Entrepreneur Program has been a hit it out of the park home run by a hundred different measures. If it was a tech startup, it'd be a Google, right? It would be, you know, one of the great outcomes. And so, you know, someone with, you know, great track record, you know, battle scars, you know, lots of people who are loyal to him and dedicated to him will speak highly of it, him or her. I'm, you know, I'm using the male pronoun, but of course, you know, I'm referring to men and women. Um, you know, figure out who they are and, and back them. And, and I've had this formula work multiple times. I met the the founder of Mass Mocha, you know, way back when, you know, the early 90s. And back then it was, it was essentially shells of buildings in an abandoned area of Northwest Massachusetts. But the way I described Andy is the way I could describe Joe Thompson, just focused, you know, super high integrity person, great ethics, knows how, has had a vision, a clear strategy, could organize people. And now it's, you know, America's largest, most successful, beautiful contemporary art museum. And working with him is also like working with Andy has been one of the joys of my life. And, and so, you know, you, you got to get very good very quickly at figuring out, you know, who is going to be the people you're going to allocate your scarce resource of time, money, attention to. And, those are the ones you, you back. It's like you and all every day of your life, you're deciding to invest in people, right? You know, your time and your effort and your resources. And that I think has been the key for me. Uh, the founder of Ridgewood, Bob Swanson, same guy, you know, I thought it'd be a two year job and, you know, I was there for 33 or four years and, and that's it, you know, great people with great backgrounds, doing wonderful things with clear strategies who communicate effectively. And, you know, that's been what I pick over and over. Is part of that, and just, just to tie out on it, is part of it, what I'm hearing 
people first. I got it. That has to be right. And then like whatever we wind up doing together, I don't quite know what it'll be, but it needs to be about the, you know, my relationship with the person. That's exactly my right assessment of them. You, you, in a long relationship, you never know what it is you're going to do together because everything in life changes. You know, you know, I was at one company for 30 something years, but I feel like I was at 15 companies. And, you know, TIA has gone through eight or 10 different versions and everything, everything you do, nothing is static. And someone who doesn't understand how things evolve, you know, will never be successful. But, you know, team first, people first. Um, you know, I like to joke that a business plan, you know, gets stale, is stale almost as soon as the, you know, dries when it comes out of the printer. And so that's the first thing. But, you know, I, I also do want to understand strategy because it rarely works well, even though you're going to pivot. If you go into something disorganized, um, you know, that doesn't make sense. You want to understand why that person thinks what they're asking you to commit to is going to be successful. And doing that shows me two things. The first thing it shows is, do they have one, you know, or, you know, and what is it? And is it really well thought out? And they thought about the risks, you know, the risk to it, uh, as well as the likelihood of success. And the other thing is that you learn, are they effective at communicating it? You know, people who are not effective at communicating strategy won't be effective at communicating any, at anything. And anything that's going to scale and be successful is going to have dozens of constituencies, you know, whether it's, doesn't matter if it's not-for-profit, social, you know, for-profit business. Like that combination of employees, vendors, partners, customers, suppliers, on and on and on. They all want to know who they're working with, what their strategy is. And, and if they're not able to communicate it, why partner with them? It's not going to be successful. So that's why you spend, you don't do a 30-minute interview with someone. You spend a lot of time with them. You have lunch, you have dinners, you watch things over time because you want to get to the point where you know they're going to be successful. Now, having said that, it's very common that you immediately know if someone's no good and you often will quickly know if someone's going to be very good. And, you know, one, we're all familiar with a founder of a company that we've all invested with, you know, this company Leafling, CEO is Ryan Smith. I think as soon as we all met him, we knew he was going to be a successful young entrepreneur. And he had what it took. He, he was focused. He had ideas. He obviously was clever and smart and aggressive. But you still want to spend enough time to figure out what they're going to do because, um, you know, that, that you never, things will change over time. And, Bob, can we push you a little bit on this one? Because it's one thing to be able to look at, you know, somebody's career over time and say, wow, yeah. they've got some stuff going on. But you have been extremely successful in identifying young, unproven talent. What do you and you did it with Ryan Smith the the first time you met him? What what is it that you're looking for when somebody doesn't have a body of work that you sit and you go, "There's the right stuff" because you've done it multiple times. Yeah, um, you know, 
yeah, yeah, look, you got to have instincts about people. And, you know, they're going to be wrong part of the time as well. And, and look, great people have failures. So uh, you're going to be entirely right about the person. Um, you know, even a young entrepreneur has spent time doing things prior to the time they've started their company. You know, you and I, we probably all had paper routes and delivered bagels or um, did things in our college dorm, you know, to make make money or caddied or, work, you know, worked hard, um, sold. And, uh, you know, and you want to spend time thinking about, talking about with this, be like, what have they done up until that point? And is it an impressive story or is it an unimpressive story? Very few people who've done very little with their lives decide to do something new and get really successful. And even someone in their early 20s, you know, has done a lot between 16 and 25 to, you know, gain experience and push themselves and you know, do they seem hungry and, do, you know, do they, have they come up with ideas that, wow, I wish I had thought about that when I was in my 20s. Um, uh, you know, they have they organized people to, to do something? I mean, you just got to be a great listener and about whether those people have done things innovative and successfully and Frankly, you're also looking for people with a little bit of an edge who are tough because running a business is hiring and firing and dealing with scarce resources. And, and you want to hear that coming through their words and their voice and their demeanor. And, and, um, but I just look for successful people who've done more than they needed to to get to that point, right? It's I'll give you a great example. Uh, my my girlfriend's boy, my girlfriend's my daughter's boyfriend. He grew up in a poor African American family in New Orleans. I was down in New Orleans uh, a week ago and was at his house. And he uh, coincidentally went to Colgate um, and now is working in a hedge fund. And the journey this young man has taken from poor African-American family in a you know, difficult neighborhood of New Orleans to Colgate and Wall Street is a long journey. And it's not like growing up in Greenwich or Larchmont or Manhasset where, yeah, you know, getting a job on Wall Street and going to a college, like that's assumed that your parents are going to grease that, that route. And so he's someone who's done something to get there. And as you talk to him, you, you appreciate, you know, what it took and, you know, what his mother did, uh, you know, single mom, you know, to get him there and values that were instilled. And you want to hear that from the people. And by the way, they can grow up on the Upper East Side and, you know, in a very successful family. But were they that kind of person who never took the easiest route you know, sort of now, but really has done things that are difficult and has done them well. And if they have, they're like more likely than most others to be successful. And that's what I look for. If, and that's super helpful. I, I'm, if we can take a step back, you started as a lawyer, 
uh, that I believe was a fairly short career yes. uh, practicing law. And then you shift to PE and ultimately to raising billions of dollars. Can you, you know, normally when we think of attorneys, we don't think of capital raisers. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Yeah. I mean, or was that something that was always there and just hidden under a law degree? Yeah, on this, I, I think like was the job description when you met, you know, when you went to Ridgewood, was it, were you going to be general counsel or was it already clear that Bob yeah. was going <clears> to <throat> evolve and had all these other abilities? Yeah, so, I mean, I never should have been a lawyer. I mean, I was entrepreneurial from the get-go. I mean, I was interviewing for non for non-legal jobs while I was in law school. You know, it was different back in nineteen in the mid eighties. You know, the there hadn't been this finance and tech boom. So, you go to law school and you go to a big New York firm because you know the money's good, but. I never stopped looking for something that was more entrepreneurial. And I have always loved to sell. You know, I've, I just get a kick out of it. I enjoy the challenge of it. Uh, you know, I think it's a real test of your ability. And when I say sell, I'm not talking about just, you know, sell a product, but sell myself, sell my ideas and the like. And, you know, I met Bob Swanson, who's the founder of Ridge, who was looking for a general counsel. And he met me and he met another lawyer who he liked very much, you know, kid who went to an Ivy League school and worked at a big New York firm, a little bit older than I was. And he didn't have a lot of money, but he said, I'm not really looking. Bob Gold does not want to be my lawyer. Um, he knew it. And he ended up hiring both of us. And he said, you know, the other lawyer, he can do all the legal work and, you know, Bob, you, you can do some of the legal work, but let's figure out how to grow the company as well. So after about three months, I stopped doing any legal work and uh, we would raise money through uh, broker dealers. And I just started cold calling and started getting on the road and started visiting them and then started having ideas for new products and you know ways to expand the business. And um, we've had so many different investment funds doing so many different things at Ridgewood because we never stopped trying to be creative and thinking like, you know, what else could we do that could create value for ourselves and our investors? So, yeah, I, I, I was like caged up as a lawyer. I mean, I had no patience to read documents. And, and the thing that always bothered me about being a lawyer is, you know, you sort of, you don't always, you're not always rooting for your client because if the deal goes forward, you got to work around the clock. And if it you know dies a slow death, you have some free time. And to be so disinterested in outcome is no way to spend your career. And you want to live and die by the, the success of things that you're working on. Um, and the thrill of, you know, we did tech investing, you know, when our very first company got Goldman Sachs and some other firms to be their underwriter and file the S1 and, you know, all those kinds of things, or, you know, when another company sold itself or when you close around the financing, we had a cellular, you know, the cell phone software company where we got 
the three largest European cell phone operators to invest in it. The, the excitement of that, you know, of going to the, the countries where those companies were and meeting with their senior management, it never gets old, you know, like, you know, meeting with investors and understanding them and understanding how your product fits with them and then doing deals that, you know, are executing on the plan that you told them. I never lost the excitement or the interest for doing that. And so, that's why, you know, I, I did what I did. It was, I think I had one of the great careers, not because it was, you know, as lucrative as it was, because I never stopped enjoying what we were doing. I mean, toward the end, I, you know, I've been doing, doing it for too long and it was time to do something that gave me that same rush. Um, you know, Ridgewood had stopped giving me that rush, so I moved on. But yeah, it's it's finding something you love and that you're passionate about. I mean, this is these are the cliches again, but I had that. I had it for a very long time. Bob, I'm curious. You know, you said I love to sell, and and I think that's clearly an understatement. I mean, I know this is only going to be audio, but it's it's visibly infectious how excited you get about this, and and you haven't just kind of sold you know, everyday product to, it's not like you're selling shoes to somebody, you know, on, on right. the street, like you sold to some of the most sophisticated, knowledgeable, well-researched customers in the world. It, and I think, you know, this question is really, I think, geared at uh, hopefully shedding some light for entrepreneurs, fund managers, like any core advice, things that you've seen along the way that is, is highly correlated with successfully selling to people that are that difficult to sell to? Because again, you've, you've raised capital from some of yeah. the largest institutions in the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I have any, you know, secrets that, you know, other people haven't um, talked about in, you know, in this kind of conversation, but, you know, you, I always joke with the young entrepreneurs who I mentor that you're going to have to call me 20 times before I pick up the phone. And it's not because I want to be a pain in your neck because I want to teach you that anyone who's worth talking to, you're going to have to call 20 times to get to them. And I always have this scenario that everyone who's going to really make a difference to your business already is a very busy person with a you know successful career and you know, a great job and a certain way of doing things. And you have to tell them that life without you is not as good as life with you. So in my context, you know, I would go to the most sophisticated institutional investors, some of whom had, you know, a hundred billion under management or $10 billion under management. And ultimately is investing 50 to $500 million with me going to change anything I mean, on the margins, maybe, but in reality, no. But I need them to put aside what they're working on and allocate their time and resources to me and go to bat into their institution for my fund and ultimately get it through all their gates and all their hurdles and all their processes and become my advocate and in order to do that, if you're a young entrepreneur, it's the same process, right? They, they need to get someone at some, you know, big bank or big tech company or, you know, big media company, whatever, to take on their product or service. 
and they've already had something that may look a lot like it, you know, with, and they have to be, you know, figure out why it fits with them, why it will make a difference. They need that person to like them in many ways. And when I say like, I don't mean buddies. I mean, we have a saying that people do, people like to do business with people they like to do business with. And it doesn't mean you're their friend, but it means you provide them with all the information they need, great service, great outcomes. You over deliver, under promise, you, you know, on and on and on. And you convince them in advance that you are that person. And if you're able to get someone inside an organization to believe mightily in you and your product, service, organization, that's, that's the game changer. Because if they don't, you know, as soon as there's a little, you know, tough sledding, someone in their organization says, yeah, maybe we don't need this. They drop you immediately. <laughs> I mean, they call you up and say, ah, I couldn't get it through. Goodbye. And, but if you, if you do get that connection, conviction, belief, um, and, you know, you, you move forward. And it's interesting. It's very little to do with the features of the product, although you got to have it. Um, but you assume there are other things that have similar features. It's much more with the connection you make with them, how you align their interests and futures with yours, how much service you give them, how responsive you are. Um, and if you can, if you have that happen, you're successful. That's just, you know, but, but boy, it's a long, hard process, right? You got to really <laughs> commit to it. Yeah. Bob, Again, you're a guy who's been successful in multiple arenas, but no one on earth is perfect right. and complete. If yep. you could add one skill set to Bob Gold that you don't currently have, wave a wand, what would you add? Yeah, I mean, there's more than one, Andy. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'll um, give you three. Yeah, so... You know, I'm not the most organization, organized, detail-oriented, process-related person you'd ever meet. Um, I need to work with people who can fill in around me on that, who, you know, bring more organization methodology to things. I... I generate a lot of ideas. I go, everything's a lot of focus and effort. Um, but behind me or alongside me is always a group of others who make me look a lot better than I probably am. Who, you know, when that person calls up and needs something on the other end of the phone and it's, involves answering 25 questions, I'm not the right person to fill out that questionnaire, get those 25 questions. Or when we need structure in place to provide great investor relations, I'm not the person to set that up. So, you know, I don't know, right brain, left brain, like I'm much more on the innovation, entrepreneurial, salesy side, but the management, organization, operational side, I don't have the, the same skill sets that others do. And those are equally important. You know, I, 
entrepreneurs tend to discount that and think that's a commodity. But when you've seen those things done poorly, you realize the whole organization is ineffective and the customers just won't be there. You know, the relationships won't occur. So that's my weakness. Yeah. Yeah. You make me think of the great natural athlete with bad hygiene isn't successful. Let let, let me push you a little farther on that because that's kind of a, in a business context, uh, adding a skill. What about as a person? Right. You know, is there, is there an element to Bob Gold, the person, the man you wish you had more of? Hmm. (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot, you know, (laughs) I'm going to have to think about it. I mean, I can well, we, can, we can ask patient. Kaisella. You know, like, you know, like my fiance will tell me that when I'm talking to someone and they don't interest me, I, I turn off and you can tell. <laughs> um, We've seen that. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, I'm going to go to the other next table very quickly. <laughs> um, you know, like, I'm not a great, um, you know, uh, you know, I could be better at empathy, you know, with, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, when I'm with people who interest me, I'm wonderful. <laughs> but when I'm with people who are, I just think are underperformers in life and, uh, you know, I feel like I'm wasting my time talking to them. Uh, yeah, I'm not that warm and fuzzy with them. I, it's not a good thing, really. <laughs> So, so in your next life, Bob Gold will be spending more time with boring people. <laughs> well, look, those are, they're good people as well. You know, there's, there are a lot of good people who I tend to not, you know, give the, the attention and patience to. But um, maybe I'm too quick at making judgments about people who I should give more time to. But, yeah, I'd, I'd rather not. Spend time with people I don't find interesting. I get, I don't know, but it, it, it can come across as maybe caustic and obnoxious to some. I would guess. What do you think? Does that sound about right? I, I think you know, framed another way, you're a guy who really values every second of life. And now, uh, <clears throat> you know, Bob, Bob, I know we wanted to ask you a lot of questions about you know, your investment approach, but I, I feel right. like we've gotten a really good handle on how you make decisions, what you look for. I am curious, a lot of the stuff that you've done over your career is very long-term, like you're building really long-term value for your employees, your company, your investors. And, you know, we often see in, in kind of early stage investing, it takes a long time to know whether or not the things actually worked out. Right. During the in-between, how do you know if things are going well or not, whether it's an investment in an early stage company or, you know, working with a, you know, a, a venture capital fund where maybe you've invested with the managers or maybe in your own business, like the day to day, how do you know if things are going well? Yeah. So, you know, it might be worth talking about in the context of investing in funds and returns and, you know, red flags and how do you know if things are working? So, you know, I like to look at the organization first, you know, is there a lot of turnover or are people departing? Uh, do they overhype outcomes? Do they, do they, 
they tell you things that are going to happen and they miss both on amount and times like, you know, or, are there a lot of write-offs? Um, and, you know, there is a J curve, but, you know, are there those types of red flags that um, reflect that this organization is just not functioning effectively? So, you know, returns are part of it, but just as there are, you know, a lack of stability, a lack of transparency in the organization that, you know, makes me think the returns just aren't going to be there. Because I've never seen an organization that functions really poorly generate good returns. <laughs> so, you know, then on the other hand, you know, if all those things are going well, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the returns are going to be there, but, you know, it, it's, it's a sign that, you know, there's a chance that, you know, they will be there. Um, so, it, you know, are they building? Are their funds going up? Do they have high quality investors? Um, uh, you know, and, and one of the real metrics in an early stage venture fund is are there portfolio companies you know, sort of systematically and regularly attracting additional capital at increasing valuations, you know, marks is what we refer to it. And again, whereas it's not certain just because the company is attracting more capital and increasing valuations that those companies will be successful, it is certain that if they're not, they're not going to. And, and that's very likely. And as a general rule, um, it's, you know, those companies in that portfolio are going to be successful. And then the other thing is, you know, to the extent that funds do have returns, you, you know, I'm always really interested in sort of the quality of those returns. I mean, there have been many examples of, you know, Silicon Valley angels funds that went one for a hundred, but the one is Google or some company like that. And that's not really a replicatable model. So, you know, you want to see funds that have, Sure, they have those 20 X's or, or greater, but do they have the one X's, the two X's, the five X's? Can they even have the 0.5 X's? Because, you know, are they a group that are willing to take losses, not throw good money after bad, explain it to the investors? And so you have a really good understanding of, you know, how they function. You know, the, the other thing you want to see is when you invested in them, what was their strategy? And are they executing on it? So if all of a sudden they start having, you know, what mission creep or investment creep, but it's not just creep, because things do evolve, but you're going way outside, you know, their, the parameters of where you think they'd be investing. That's a warning sign. And, you know, you get nervous because if they haven't explained why, then you realize that, you know, not only was their strategy bad, but they may be outside of areas of expertise. So, you know, as a general rule, you know, I'm looking for things that are indicative that it's working, particularly with early stage venture funds. And I said, it's not just marks. It's, you know, a lot of different things um, around team strategy, outcomes uh, and the like. And, and I have found over the course of being, you know, a fund investor and a fund manager that if those things are in place, uh, you're likely to have a really good outcome. And, you know, very candidly, I, you know, as I've observed TIA Ventures, you know, this is your, I know you're going to market with your third one, but you've also had co-invest. You guys have done exactly that. You know, you've, 
you've had a strategy, you've stuck to it, you've had some very good successes, you've had some very big marks, your, your team is growing, you have a differentiated approach um, to how you invest. And I would be stunned if you guys aren't really successful at it. I mean, I've seen this formula, this these measures turn out wonderfully. And that's kind of kind of what I'd expect from TIA Ventures based on the data that I've seen. And you communicate it really well, which is, I think, absolutely critical because if you can't communicate what you're doing well, like I said, you're unlikely to, you know, to have that success. It, it, it's interesting you touch on the, the word communication because you know, we find putting together investor updates is a ton of work <clears throat> and we're never sure if anyone actually reads the whole thing and that gets to the question of what is the right amount of communication. We used to, when I had my consulting business, you know, we would have a two-page management summary and then you know, 50 pages of reports. And then I, I would bet 98% of the clients read the two-page management summary, never went past that. What's the right amount? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I mean, it varies a lot. So, you know, one of the reasons, by the way, just stepping back, why I think it's so important is in order for you to communicate well, you have to know everything about the things that are in your communication, <laughs> uh, right? You, you, you know, I've always thought when I had to give it, a, can you hear me okay? Yeah, perfectly. Yeah. 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 So in order for you to write a portfolio update, you need at a pretty granular level to know what's going on with your companies. Otherwise, your communications are both no good and likely to be inaccurate, and you hold yourselves to that high standard. And I always think, like, if I'm giving it, when I was giving talks to experts, you know, to CPAs about the tax treatment of certain investments, boy, did I have to learn that stuff again and again. Or if I was writing an investor letter, you know, I had to call everyone on my team about every aspect of what was going on in that investment so that, you know, for the people who do read it, and Andy, you're right, you know, 90% of it, the people won't read all of it, but the 10% that who do read all of it, they're the ones that show up at your LP meetings with all the good questions in front of your other LPs. And God help you if you don't have good answers to their questions, because you don't deserve to have their money. So communications is not, you know, about necessarily telling a story. It's about learning everything you need to know in order to tell the story well. Now, so what's the right amount? It's the right amount. It's the amount that requires you as manager to be completely on top of your business and to give your investors a fairly full picture of what's going on with their investment. And typically that can be done in a quarterly update. Um, sometimes, you know, you can do it with a Zoom by just doing a slide deck and because doing those slides requires the same amount of work, you know, then your writing requires the extra work, but getting all that data into your organization, analyzed and understood so that you can then repurpose it and provide it to your investors. But that's the right amount, you know, where, where you know everything and your investors have a full picture of what's going on, both good and bad. And, and that you're not shying away from giving us bad news. I and mean, everyone who's investing in your fund is a grown up. 
and, you know, has had losses in their life, you know, financial losses and want to hear it and want to hear it early. And as long as you're doing that, I think you've hit on the right amount. The you've, we've touched on a variety of things. You've been an investor, an entrepreneur, a fund manager, a fund builder, an early stage uh, angel. What, of all the things you've done, and a philanthropist, what are you most proud of? What feeds you the most, feeds your soul the most? Yeah. Well, there have been a, I mean, there have been so many. I mean, as you know, I have five kids and as a single parent, and they've all done, are doing great. And ultimately, that's your legacy, right? So, um, you know, I'm most proud of my, you know, my, my personal life and, you know, the outcome so far in that. Um, and, you know, they're going to marry just a wonderful group of people and have strong relationships. And, you know, we've got, got them through some difficult periods and, and that I'm most proud of. Um, look, when I joined Ridgewood, we barely existed. You know, we were four people in a one-room schoolhouse in suburban New Jersey. And at one point, you know, we had offices, and as I mentioned, London, Houston, San Francisco, New York, Egypt, Northern, uh, Southern California, Chicago, you know, on and on and on, you know, built a really big, successful, effective organization that for many people, most people, there was a joy to work at, you know, life-changing place for a lot of people. And no one investment, no one outcome could eclipse that. You know, the process of building an organization that was, you know, life-changing for the people who were there for a long time. And, you know, yes, we had, you know, good returns. We had bad returns sometimes. But, but you know, that's, I think, the thing I'm most pr proud of. The, you know, the people I hired, trained, you know, made, helped make successful. In terms of philanthropy, I mean, there have been a lot of things, but it's all it's been all the things that when I joined barely existed, you know, so the one school one room schoolhouse equivalent and today have, you know, been huge change agents in their community or their organization. And I know you, Andy, as founder of TIA, you know, the Thought Into Action Entrepreneur Program at Colgate and Wilson and I have been involved in it. We feel exactly that way about that, that it was six kids in a room with the three of us. And it became, I think, maybe the most successful liberal arts college entrepreneur program in the country. Certainly, you know, the success of the students who've come through it, you know, fills us with, with pride. Same with Mass Mocha. You know, in a, in a town which at one point had the highest vacancy rate in this real estate, highest teen pregnancy rate, highest unemployment rate, you know, all the bad measures has been turned around, not completely entirely, but, you know, creating an arts community, a business community, a tourism economy in an area that had been left for dead. Um, that is just really satisfying. Um, all these students who've become, you know, these first generations and first generation immigrants and uh, 
you know, less advantaged students who come through this, this math program we started Long Island, who went on to Ivy League schools and engineering schools. And at one point I was on the board of, you know, the, uh, the engineering school in Brooklyn, which is acquired by NYU. And it was all first generation immigrants, essentially. Seeing the, the change in their lives, that, that's what you live for. Really, it's, you know, it's not more money or, you know, a nicer house or any of that stuff. It's having impact and knowing where I've created impact. And, you know, that's that's your legacy. And that's the thing that always provided me the biggest. And oh, by the way, you know, professionally, when, you know, I can remember a few companies which started, you know, our first boardroom was in some guy's basement or you know, some <laughs> suburban office park. And, you know, they went on to raise tens and tens of millions and have hundreds of employees and change the sector that they were in. That's also extremely satisfying and, you know, the biggest professional rush you can get. So that for me is it, you know, taking something from early stage and turning in it or some person into someone or something with impact. Bob, it's interesting because at the outset of the conversation, when you kind of painted a 60 second, you know, pitch of your life, at the end, you said, if I got this right now, I'm going to move on to more entrepreneurial things. And I mean, based on everything you just said, I'd argue you've always, everything you've done has been entrepreneurial. Do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, I, I look, I haven't started some, well, so now I've started a SPAC. We filed with the SEC. We got it. We've gone through it. You know, I am the the beginner of it, and it's too long a conversation. You're familiar with it, but it started with nothing. We ended up with every major investment bank trying to get the business, and you know, a world class team and all the rest. So that was really entrepreneurial. You know, to go from zero to 160 in about six weeks and then go back to about 10 miles an hour uh, as that market slowed down. So, so yeah, I do think of myself as an entrepreneur. And candidly, one of the reasons why I left Ridgewood after all that time and I could stay there my whole life was it stopped having that buzz for me. It stopped being entrepreneurial. It's kind of great organization, you know, doing good things. But for me, it was, it had solidified and, you know, I no longer woke up every day, you know, what I get, what do I need to do today to make it successful? And so that's been, I do consider myself an entrepreneur, um, but I also consider myself as it likes to back great teams and great entrepreneurs just as much um, and provide, you know, coaching and guidance and thoughts and help. So, Bob, by any measure, you've had a great ride. I'm curious if you step back and you said, you know what? If I could do it over again, is there anything you would change? You know, not, not a lot, Andy. Like, so in hindsight, what are the things like, you know, I had the opportunity to live, live and work overseas. I think that'd be a great experience. The world was less global when we we're growing up and now it's obviously very global and, you know, having the experience of working overseas would have been valuable. You know, the other thing was I had a couple of offers to go to much, much larger organizations and maybe having that kind of platform 
for, you know, some amount of time, you know, to do things at a bigger scale would have been interesting. I mean, you all know my friend Hans Morris, he now runs a, a venture fund. But at one point he was the, you know, CFO of city and the, uh, not, not city, not the entire city, but their, their investment bank and their corporate bank and then the president of Visa. And that was a platform which he could do some very big things. And, you know, I, the, could have gone into government at some point where you get that platform. And that might've been a really interesting challenge to, to try to really get scale, make scale level changes and have, you know, scale level impact. I probably would have died in those organizations. You know, I, I, I always thought that it would be not a place where I would thrive because, you know, I'm just not a bureaucracy person, but in hindsight, you know, those are the two things, which maybe if I had done, I would have, you know, been even better. It could have been better what I did. And if you went back to Bob in his twenties or thirties and, and you weren't changing anything, it's the same trajectory. Is there something you wish you knew then that you know now that maybe would have allowed you to do even more? Um, or advice you would have given the young Bob? <clears throat> Isn't all the fun of it making the mistakes? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Everything in life that's worth having is what you've earned. And if it's, you know, and you've earned it, you earn it by learning it. I mean, you know, it really is your, you know, your mistakes and your missteps from which you learn. So I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't spent enough time thinking about that. I mean, yeah, on a micro level, there are a lot of investments that we made that in hindsight, it's like, what were we thinking? And if we had only known, you know, fill in any one of the thousand blanks, we never would have done it or never would have done it that way or would have gotten out sooner or on and on and on. And, you know, those are the things that come from experience, um, you know, and, and, you know, you guys certainly, you know, had those. But as a general rule, like going into things with nothing but, piss and vinegar and enthusiasm and naivete allows you to do them. And if you understand just how difficult it would be and all the hurdles of instructions you'd have to go through, you'd maybe you would just it. take a job at a bank. So I, I'm actually not you know, sad that I was an idiot. Um, and I joined a guy with four people and I could have taken the job at Goldman, you know, in 1987. Because if I had known everything, I probably would have done it. It would have been far less fun and satisfying and all the rest. So no, I'd have to say, yeah. So, so Bob, we, we've touched on the early mm -hmm. Bob. We've touched on what you're doing now. And let's accelerate to the point where they're uh, laying you to rest. And they, yeah. have, that tomb, they have that tombstone over, uh, over you. And... What do you want it to say on that tombstone, the epitaph? Oh, my God, Andy. Uh, so, <laughs> I want people to talk about my generosity. You know, he was generous with everything he did, whether it was time, money, love, support, uh, I feel like I try to bend over backwards to be generous and helpful and giving. 
to the people and the things that I care the most about. I try to exceed people's expectations. And, you know, when people are walking around my casket and burying me, if they can say, wow, that one time I asked Bob for, you know, X or needed Bob to do this. Not only did he say yes, but he did way more than I thought he would have or should needed to or could have. And he always tried to do that. And that would be, that would be the most, uh, that would be the most generous way for someone to talk about my generosity. Um, yeah, that would be it. Can I offer an epitaph? Uh, go, go for it, Andy. <laughs> I was just going to say, when I, when I think of what I would write for you is he made a difference in people's lives. Okay. I'll take that. That's, well, I want to, you know, that's, you know, like I said, having, uh, having had the experience of losing people I loved early, you get, I got focused on trying to do that and trying to do it with generosity and enthusiasm. So thank you. As have both of you. You know, you know, I think part of the, um, I learned so much, Bob, we've known each other for a long time and I learned so many more things just as a function of getting to do things like this. Part of the fun of the interviews and our experience has been like the average person walking down the street may not know Bob Gold or like they wouldn't know how to identify you. Um, they wouldn't understand all the layers to Bob Gold, all the things okay. that you've done for the world. And, um, you know, I, I think Andy and I both feel that if they did, they'd have you know, a, a more positive outlook on, on life and, and the world and the things going on in their own kind of lives. So, you know, whether or not the world knows who Bob is when they walk down the street, hopefully, you know, through listening to this, hearing your perspective on life and business uh, will help them <clears throat> in what they do. And, and hopefully they get to know Bob and how generous well, he is, but. Uh, well, that's really nice. You know, I don't want to get all field of dreams with you, but when, whenever you get in a conversation with people, like, is there a heaven, right? And often you're having that conversation at places that are really nice. And like, so you'll be, you know, sitting around the fire with people you love, doing things you, you love. And I always say like, well, if there is a heaven, wouldn't you hope to be the kind of thing like you're outdoors on the beach, sitting around a fire with people you love, having a glass of wine, you know, your kids are there, you know, you're just surrounded by all the things you care about. Don't you hope that's what heaven's like? And you go, well, yeah. I go, well, so aren't we there now? <laughs> you know, like, and, and that's what I try to create. Not every day, of course, but as often as possible where, you know, you feel like, okay, you know, whether or not you believe in it, let's try to create our own version of it as often as we can, because that's kind of what you live for. Oh, I love that. Uh, that is great. And I wish I remembered the song that has the lyric about we have heaven right here on earth. Could you just describe it? Hey, being with the two of you at the jug on a Friday night, you know, and that's where, wouldn't you want heaven to be that? Like, not every day of heaven, but boy, if I'm in heaven and I'm with Andy and Wills and we're sitting at the jug having a drink, or that'd be pretty good. <sighs> Bob, huge, huge thanks for your time Thank you. And, uh, we did and your story. 
Thank you for listening to our interview with Bob Gold, former CEO and president of Ridgewood Capital, where Bob has touched on how difficult life events can make all work-related obstacles seem surmountable, some simple steps to increasing your odds of winning, talking about pitching and communicating with your audience in a way that's far more effective and more. Look forward to having you join us for our next interview with Joel Mesnick, a global citizen who has achieved success at virtually every end of the investment spectrum. Thank you again for listening.